Um, so we are, as I said, launching into this Christmas series, we're calling From Waiting to Celebrating, and I'm hoping that this weekend positions us uh, to be able to posture ourselves for the coming weeks, and in terms of how we can uh, step into this season together. And in particular, what I'd like to do with this message that um, has been constructed is to be able to kind of start us on the journey of considering that He is the one who is able to meet us where we are. He is the one. That's what Christmas, it it means many things, but it reminds us that he is the one who's able to meet us where we are. Now, this is a season um, in my life, in my wife and and I, in our lives, that's different than any other season we've been in. Um, And some of you may or may not be aware, but a number of weeks ago, around six weeks ago or so, we were able to bring into the world our first baby girl, um, our first child. And uh, hey, thank you. Um, and so Adeline Rose was born October 19th, and uh, we have been just, you know, overjoyed with her, and um, it's definitely altered things in our, uh, well, in every aspect of our life. Uh, it's, you know, impossible for it not to, but I've, I've gotten placed in this, in this particular season in my life in which I've been able to experience just a number of emotions I'm not used to at the same time. Um, and I have to say, being kind of up close and personal as a, like, as a front row seat on the entire process, I, I understand why they call it labor. Um, it's laborious. And uh, I, I've got to witness the miracle of life, you know. And um, some miracles are painful uh, in terms of what at least I witnessed and some experienced. You know, I got to say, my respect level for mothers everywhere after kind of walking through it with my wife is, Boy, it's skyrocketed, you know. It's unbelievable what God has done uh, to bring life into this world, to walk through it. And it's kind of converged a number of things in, in our lives, certainly my wife and I. Um, but just from my personal experience, a couple things that have happened. Um, it's been a season in which I have experienced pain um, and joy at the same time. And it's an interesting thing to be able to experience both simultaneously. Uh, It's been a season in which there has been some sacrifice and a, at the same time, deep sense of fulfillment combined. I have experienced uh, high levels of stress in these last several weeks. She's not using her words yet. Um, (laughs) And at the same time, a very deep level of gratitude both present. I've experienced for the first time in my life what it is like to have fatherly love. And I'm discovering what it is like to have fatherly paranoia (laughs) at the same time. Um, In fact, it was a number of weeks ago where we were taking our first trip as a family out of the house after bringing her home, and we were taking her back to the doctor for a checkup. And we decided we had this time where we were going to get going. And so we started getting ready. And we're, you know, things change when you have a child. And so about an hour and a half later, we were ready to go. Uh, and we were in the car and making our way out of the house. And we were going to kind of a more congested part of the city, um, a thoroughfare that has like four lanes in it in both ways. And um, it was kind of a time of day where there was a good amount of traffic. And all of a sudden, I, I realized things have changed. The way I used to drive. Um, the way, the carefree way I used to drive it was no longer the way I could drive now. 
um, something had been altered. And I was driving and I just felt, you know, like I needed a sign saying 10 feet minimum, please, right? I needed, I needed everyone to know that they, they could not approach near our, uh, where we were. And we have a kind of a smaller vehicle. And we're in the season right now where we're just driving. But everything she does, at least at this point, I know it's not going to last forever. But for right now, we're in this place where when she does something new, it's cute. Even if it smells terrible, it's cute, right? And so she'll make noises or she'll make faces. And my wife will kind of alert me, you know. And so we're in the car and she's in the back with, with Adeline and she, she's making a face and noises. And so at, at, at one moment I'm looking at the rear view and I'm like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And I just felt kind of this depth of gratitude and uh, just felt so good. And, and right at that moment, a bus that was to our right decided they wanted to be in our lane. They just didn't let me know. Ends up cutting me off in the front and it was one of those articulated buses where it has two sections and has kind of an accordion like pivot you know what I'm talking about and so I see this you know bus and I see it in front of me and I slow down and it gets right in front of us and I look in the rear view and the bus is also simultaneously behind us and so all that's left to us is the patch of road I'm on and the median and so I don't I don't like it and I want to communicate this uh, to the bus driver and so I, I lay on the horn and I lay on the horn hard and heavy, right? I'm, I'm on the horn. And the bus immediately stops. And I stop. And he stares at me through the, the side view mirror. And he's staring at me. And I'm staring at him. And we're just staring at each other. I'm, I'm upset. And then cars on the other side of the road going in the opposite side of the direction. They stop. And now they're staring at us. And I'm wondering why everyone's staring at each other. And at that moment, my wife says, hey, honey, I think you got the point. You can let go of the horn now. Um, <laughs> it's all right. And so I let go and he, he, he like looks at me, I look at him and I'm just mad and he gets, he makes his way, he allows us out and we end up at the stoplight and at the stoplight, I end up right next to the bus driver <laughs> and I'm charged up, you know? And so I think, you know what? He's not aware of us, but I want him to know I'm aware of him. And so I look at him, he looks at me and I thought, you know, this is a good idea. And I go, you know what? I'm watching you. <laughs> And as I was doing it, I thought, this is not a good idea. I thought it was. No longer do I think it's a good idea. Why am I doing this, right? It's not effective. He's bigger. He has a bigger vehicle. Um, and so he stares at me, and I'm, I stare at him, and we're just staring at each other. And he, he is kind of like taken off guard, and I'm upset. And then at that moment, it seems like he, he saw that in the back seat, we have a, a baby, an infant. And so I could tell he felt bad. He felt bad and he starts apologizing. I feel bad. I start apologizing. We're apologizing to each other. Then I realize I'm a pastor. You live in the city. You might go to our church. It's not good. My wife is in the back. She's concerned. Um, so she says, hey, do you want, do you want me to drive? Uh, I could do that, you know? And I thought, no, you did the hardest part. I can drive us to the doctor. Uh, I could do this. I was making my way, and as I was kind of making my way to the doctor, to the clinic we were going to meet, I, I just felt like, wow, things have changed. Life has changed. And I can tell you, from the moment we found out we were expecting, to the moment we were moving into the delivery, and throughout that entire process, and the last number of weeks, I can tell you that Jesus has met us. And every step of the way, 
through all the transitions, through all the questions, the anxiety and the stress and the joy, every step of the way, I can tell you, Jesus has met us. And here's the thing. I, I, I could describe this place where I'm at right now, emotionally, I could say, you could describe it as a scattered place. And you may not be there. You may not be there. See, the, the holiday season has an interesting way of bringing up different things in us. Some of us, we may actually be in a place where we are seeing how our year went and we are experiencing perhaps a day like Thanksgiving, maybe moving towards Christmas and all that that represents. And we might be experiencing kind of a degree of longing. Some of us long for a relationship we may not have or for something to be true about us or for, for something we, we may have longed for us to be in a different place at this point in the year. Others of us, we may not be in that place. We, it may actually be quite easy for us to express gratitude and joy. We feel maybe on those rare occasions fulfilled. And the more I talk to different people, in different seasons of life or where there might be, one of the things that I've noticed is that there are some of us who are actually experiencing high levels of fear. We see what's going on. We're walking through seasons. And the best way to describe it is we're afraid. Others of us, it might be a degree of anxiety where everything looks like it should be going well, but underneath the surface, there's a whole lot of volatility. Sometimes good news could be anxious-inducing, anxiety-inducing. Because the question comes back, and I've had this conversation, why is this creating anxiety? It's going well. Well, it's going well, but how long will this last? I feel like it might disappear. And I don't know where we might be at, but you know what it is indicative of? It, it indicates of how complex we are as a people. And humanity, we, we cannot be boxed in. We are not one-dimensional. See, we have the capacity, the holiday season reminds me of it at least, that we have the capacity for tremendous beauty and good and kindness and generosity. There's something about this season that brings it out of us. We long to give. We long to be a part to others' joy. And especially when there is a need the way we are motivated and mobilized toward meeting that need is amazing. It's inspiring to see. And on the other hand, it just seems maybe it's because of this, this place that I find myself in at this point in the year. I find myself reflecting on this year. And I don't know about you, but it just feels like this year has been one in which you know, we can describe it as an enormous period of turmoil. I don't know if you've noticed the social climate we find ourselves in has made it really challenging to have a conversation between opposing views. Where it is almost impossible to have a degree of empathy for more than one side of a discussion. Where the, the climate is such that it polarizes us. And it is no longer possible to seek mutual understanding. It is now a matter of pitching ourselves against the other and seeking the fastest way to demonize and to undermine. It's an intense period we're in. 
It's, it's rather intense. We, we, perhaps in this point in human history, it's not necessarily new that there is so much violence in the world, but I do feel that technology, it, as many good as it brings, it also brings this aspect that it exposes us and it magnifies just how much violence there is in the world. And on one hand, it gives us easy access. On the other hand, it gives us easy access. And it could overwhelm us with how much we are inundated with one thing after another, after another, after another. I don't know if you've noticed it, but it's been a rather interesting year. We, in the last couple of months, have discovered, perhaps it's come to light more in a public forum, that people in positions of power, people in positions of privilege, have leveraged those two to exploit others for their own personal gain and pleasure. It's disappointing. And then, setting all that aside to speak of the acts of violence and terror that has brought about enormous death and pain and tragedy, acts that, as we see them, I, I find myself thinking to myself, how is it possible that a human being is capable. How is that possible? See, this is the human dilemma. The human dilemma is that we are capable. The same heart can create great good and beauty and kindness and love and generosity. And at the same time, is able to move into directions that we can only describe as evil. And we can only describe as devastating in its impact and its destruction. That is the reality in which we find ourselves. And that is the reality in which God, by the way, we may be increasingly aware of these situations. God has never been unaware. And all through human history, he has always seen everything. We might see the tip of the iceberg. He sees it all. And into that context, perhaps Christmas means far more than we might realize because it is into that context that God chose to speak. And he chose to send the one who is able to meet us right here. It's an amazing thing. If you open up your handout, we'll go ahead and take a look at a passage that shares from this perspective and this is a man named Isaiah and just so we understand and able to appreciate what we're going to uh, walk through together Isaiah is a man who was who was alive around 700 years prior to the coming of Christ he is speaking to his nation Israel that is experiencing high levels of material prosperity and and security they have peace in their land and they have prosperity that some, some historians had compared to the days of King Solomon, which we may not know, but was the pinnacle of their affluence. And he was speaking to a group of people who had come to this point of experiencing such degree of wealth that they became, because of their physical material wealth, they became spiritually complacent. And they allowed what was supposed to be a blessing to thank God for as a, become a license to forget God. 
And Isaiah is sent as one, um, a messenger who is meant to give them a word of, of correction and call them back. And unfortunately, he ends up delivering news that lets them know, listen, your spiritual complacency, unfortunately, has created a climate that will lead to your future suffering. And in the midst of delivering this word, he ends up in this tough news. He ends up delivering in the midst of this, one of the greatest promises ever given. And it is that that we're going to explore here together. And we're told in verse 1 that Isaiah says to Israel, he says, But there will be no gloom for her who, has, who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which geographically points to the northern area of Israel. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. He is saying, in a sense, immediately in the future, there is some pain up ahead. But then he says, but as I look down, as I look through the telescope of time, I see that he is going to do something amazing. And he says, listen, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This phrasing, this way of lyrical expression is poetic, it's symbolic. It speaks of two opposing perspectives, light and dark. And it is a way in which he is able to, if we could say it this way, he is saying, listen, you who have chosen to become more self-reliant in your way of life, who draw security out of the abundance of your possessions or your resources or your network or your security. You didn't know it, but simultaneously what happened was because you chose to enjoy the gift without remaining with the giver, something has occurred. Your soul has become dark. And a dark soul produces a dark world. And a dark world compounds itself. And it leads to a deep darkness. It's almost as if he's saying, it's pitch black. And into that place, God chose to shine a light. You know what he's not saying? And God chose to let them who forgot him remain in darkness. No, he says, there will be a day when he will shine a light. He will come and he will illuminate the human soul once again. Now, Isaiah is speaking of, of the day he is waiting for. John is speaking from a perspective. John, Jesus' disciple, from a perspective of celebrating what Isaiah was waiting for. And I asked him to put this up there. And he says, hear, hear the metaphors. And the similarity says, in him was life, in him being Jesus. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. That there is a world in which there was darkness and that is all that it dominated. But the light has shined. And John is speaking from a perspective years into his, into his life in which he is saying, and we know it, we know it, to all those who embrace the light, that darkness could not snuff him out. In fact, darkness is on the run. Because darkness can't overcome the light. 
That is what Isaiah was waiting for. And now John was celebrating. Now we're told here that this occasion in human history would cause great joy. In verse 3, we're told, Isaiah says, You have multiplied the nation, that is the, na- the amount of people who call on your name and call you their own, has multiplied. You have increased because of this moment. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. In other words, what he is saying is they experience the same joy we would experience from an investment given and a return on that investment that would exceed our expectations. Or another way of putting it, when we run into a windfall of resource we had not expected and it comes and it, it, it invades our life and all of a sudden it fills us up it says, that is the type of joy that those who embrace his light are going to experience. It's going to be something it's hard to contain. In fact, we're told the yoke of his burden and the staff of, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. In other words, what Isaiah is saying is not only did God choose to speak into a darkened world and birth his light, but he is also choosing to eliminate the oppressor and to lift those who are weighed down and to be able to speak into the very core of who they are. Which is an interesting thing. Because as, as I had already said, Isaiah is speaking to a people who are wealthy, prosperous, and secure. Who would on the surface, and this was somewhat of their challenge, on the surface seem to be well put together. Without any needs. And Isaiah is saying, in, in, in some ways what he is saying is, your external conditions of prosperity does not necessarily mean that your internal condition is prosperous. If anything, what he is suggesting is you have everything you need and yet you live weighed down. Something internally is oppressing you. Something is, is burdening you. And scriptures would, would speak of this as, um, as being captive, lame, unable to mo- mobilize, almost like movement on a treadmill, constant activity, little progress. Uh, scriptures would speak of this as being blind, unable to see and discern things. We would say in our own vernacular that somebody may have everything they need and yet it seems like they're carrying baggage. Or they, they have a wound that won't go away. Or there's an area of life that is broken. Or perhaps some of us might resonate with the feeling of having an emptiness. Or something of our internal strength is, has leaked. And this is what Isaiah is speaking into and he's saying, listen, God is able to lift this burden and break it as a day of Midian, which would call them back to a day in which Gideon was a man in Israel's history who was afraid of his enemies sitting right there on his land. And because of his fear, he was hiding and he was threshing his wheat in secret because he didn't want anyone to steal it. And an angel of God comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, you are a man of valor. And Gideon says, you are not, you are not assessing this correctly. I am not a man of valor. And after this conversation, Gideon ends up stepping into the word that God described him as and became a man of valor. And with 300 other men, God takes this small unit and ends up delivering an entire nation that is surrounded by a mighty horde. 
And Isaiah is saying, listen, don't you remember your past? If God could deliver you physically from the surrounding armies, how much more do you think he can deliver you from a captivated heart and set your soul free? He's the one who can do this. In fact, not only can he bring wholeness and peace into your your soul. He is the one, listen, for every boot of the tramping warrior is in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In layman's terms, the best way we can describe this is Isaiah saying, not only will he be able to unlock the things that hold you captive internally, he is the one who will bring the end to war. He is the one who will bring true ultimate peace on earth. Isaiah speaks this promise, which is honestly right now could be extremely difficult for us to believe. But he says he will do this. He will do this for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, God, Isaiah says, is going to be a man who will bring the end, the end to war. He will be a man who will, he will be able to step in and eliminate the oppressor. He will illuminate darkness. He will overcome injustice. He will blunt the blow of evil. And he will stop destruction from continuing. And how will he do this? Will he do this by raising up a greater army? Will he do this by overcoming the oppressor with a stronger oppressor? Is that how he will do it? Because I'll tell you what, that is how our world functions. For one to be defended, one must be stronger. And yet God steps into this context and he says, no, 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 no. You know how God is going to deliver his people from the arrogant from the unjust. You know how God is going to deliver his people from coercion? God is going to deliver his people by becoming not one who is mightier and stronger and able to overthrow and coerce and overpower. No, he will become one who is vulnerable and transparent and humble. That is how. Which says a lot about God. He's going to come and he's going to approach humanity in a posture that makes him safe and approachable. And he will not come seeking to drive a wedge and divide even further. No, he will come seeking to unite. And he will do something that we would think is rather impossible. God is going to seek to convert enemies into friends with kindness gentleness and grace that has never been seen because the child who is born will be the one on whom the greatest evil will occur unjustly unjustly punished for something he never did so that those who did it could receive forgiveness in life expressing forgiveness as he is receiving that punishment to those who are punishing him. Promising life to those who ridiculed him, spit on him, slapped him, kicked him, and crucified him. 
He comes as one who makes himself available to be rejected, promising life to those who embrace. It's an amazing posture. It says an enormous amount about God because he is the one who's able to meet us right where we're at. And you know how he does this? Because some of us, listen, he is not only safe and approachable. Some of us, we might need comfort right now in this season. And, and this is why he is the wonderful counselor. Others of us, we might need empowerment because that is what we lack. That is what we feel we lack. We feel powerless. But he is the mighty God who is able to breathe life into our soul. It transcends circumstances. Who, some of us, we might need guidance. Only we would think a loving father is able to provide. And this is why he is the everlasting father. But there is none better than him. And some of us, if we were to get a picture of what is actually going on within us, it would not be calm waters. It would be more like a raging sea with multiple currents flowing through it. And yet he is the Prince of Peace. He's able to meet us where we are. And he does this. And to those who embrace him, we're told in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal, the passion of the Lord is going to do this. This is what he has come, came to do. This is what he started. And here we are over 2,000 years later. And guess what? What, we, what do we know about human history over the last 2,000 years? What we know is that something that began in a region of the world that very few people knew about that was overcome by the greatest military power in history ends up becoming the place that God decides to birth his son. And that son, that child grows to be a man who speaks of God's love in ways no one ever has equaled, both in word and action. Ends up recruiting 12, betrayed by one, ends up having 11. And those 11 speak of his life speak of his spirit, speak of his light. And those who embrace him end up becoming something they never expected to become, agents of healing in an impressive environment. In an environment that was hostile. They end up becoming ones who speak life to others. And they become those agents of converting enemies into friends. And a movement starts to transcend people groups and ethnicities and religions and institutions to the point where secular historians accurately say this movement of Jesus ended up flipping Rome on its head. And we could even now see the ruins of the Roman Empire. Lifeless stones. But even now we see all across the world right now on this very day many millions upon millions celebrating the life and the light, celebrating the one who came, calling on his name, experiencing healing personally, healing relationally, healing societally. And if you look at it, it was those who received his life who became concerned for human life, who decided the marginalized, those cast away, those who were sick and ill, those who were of no use to society were of concern to God. And all of a sudden, an entire, an entire 
development in human history occurred, where people endangered themselves and exposed themselves to illnesses to care for those who were ill. And those, there were some who decided they wanted to leverage out what they had in terms of power and resource for those who had neither. And generosity started to explode throughout history. And in many ways, many, many, many things that have altered our world for the better are connected to the one who is able to meet us right here where we are. See, this has a direct impact on us because Christmas wasn't just something about 2,000 years ago. And Isaiah is telling us something it's worth noting. He's telling us a couple things. Firstly, he's telling us that Jesus is the one who is able to give us rest. Jesus is the one who is able to give us rest. And we live in a world that has lost touch with what rest actually looks like. Now, rest is a tricky thing. I have had periods in my life where I've had physically an abundance of sleep. But can you hear me? Because of what was going on internally, I had a lot of sleep and I still was restless. I find myself now in a season in life in which I have dramatically less sleep. And somebody could ask me, you know, how are you doing? Did you get enough sleep? And it really depends. It depends on how my soul is doing. Because if my soul is doing well, then the little sleep I can get is sufficient. But if my soul is not doing well, it doesn't matter how much physical rest I can get. It is not able to address a restless heart. Max Lucado, in his book, Anxious for Nothing, said this that I thought was interesting and good for us to consider. He says, the United States is now the most anxious nation in the world. Parenthetically, he says, congratulations to us. The land of stars and stripes has become the country of stress and strife. This is a costly achievement. Stress-related ailments cost the nation $300 billion every year in medical bills and lost productivity, while our usage of sedative drugs keeps skyrocketing. Just between a sample size, between 1997 and 2004, Americans more than doubled their spending on anti-anxiety medications like Xanax and Valium. From $900 million to $2.1 billion. The Journal of the American Medical Association cited a study that indicates an exponential increase in depression. And people of each generation in our century were three times more likely to experience depression than any previous generation before it. This may or may not shock us, but it is startling. This is the environment we live in. And he goes on, he continues, secular researchers have deduced that the reason why America has become the most anxious country in the world is because of two factors, among others. One, the pace of life has continued to speed up. And it's just one thing after another, after another, after another. And he says that, that is one reason. And then the other reason, which I think we experience at a far higher level and rate, is there is continual change. Fast pace with ongoing change creates an environment in which we are unable as a people to experiencing anything other than 
at the very least, an undergirded sense of anxiety. Because we're always on the move. And rest is one of those things that is elusive. And incidentally, it was in a moment in his ministry in which he is speaking to a crowd of people and he reads them, that Jesus says these words that I thought perhaps right now in this season of our year and season of our lives, we can, we can consider them a little bit differently. He says in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And look at these words that he uses to describe himself. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Come and trade. What is driving you? Come and surrender it to me. Take my, my yoke upon you. Surrender to me. And allow me to teach you. I who am lowly. I who am gentle. I who am sympathetic to your fragility. I who understand. The world is hard. But I will give you rest. I will allow you to breathe. I will allow you to do I will help you do that. This might be the word for us this season. This Christmas season, maybe the best way we can honor him is by receiving the rest he longs for us to have. If he is able to do that, you know what he's also able to do? He is the one who is able to give us peace. Peace. Peace is different than rest. Rest is about calming and quieting. Peace is about wholeness and security. Peace, the best picture for peace, would be a city surrounded by an impenetrable wall that is secure and strong. And Isaiah says to those who were listening, he says, listen, you being God, keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. God, I've discovered that you have the ability to speak peace and wholeness, strength and security to those whose mind is fixed on you. Why? Because they trust in you. Now, peace. Peace is one of those tricky things. It is not like a package we could simply click and receive in our home two days later. It is not. It, I know we want it to be. God, give me peace. And there it is, like a garment we wear. But it is not that. That is not the picture of wholeness the scriptures give us. See, this picture of wholeness, of peace the scriptures give us is a little bit different because notice how he says it's given to those who trust in you. When, when is trust most tested? Well, trust is tested when there is risk. When there is doubt. See, trust is required when there is fear. And there's a need to bridge something of an insecurity. That is when trust shows up. And if we, if we are here, and we might be thinking, listen, he, if we could put it this way, if Christmas means that the light shone in the darkness, it shined in the darkness, and we might have areas of our lives that we would say, boy, those areas are actually rather dark, and I would love to be in the light. And we take that step to step into the light because we long to be whole and we long to have peace. That step is one of the scariest and courageous steps we can ever take. And if we are in, in, in a way in which we live a more self-reliant way of life, in which we take somewhat of, a, of pride in the resources, in our abilities, in our networks, in, in our associations, and in everything that we take strength from, and we move to a self-reliant way of life, to a God-dependent way of life, that journey will be one of deep fear and doubt and, and insecurity. But to those who make that journey, he gives peace. 
It gives wholeness. It gives strength and security. Because they get to discover along the way, he was with me every step of the way. And they get to discover that in my fear, you were there. In my doubt, you were there. In my risk, you were there. You never let me doubt every step of the way. So a number of years ago, I was working with some teenagers who loved to go surfing, and I wanted to get to know them. And I thought joining them in their activity would help me get to know them. So I asked them to teach me to surf. And I would say, to say that they taught me to surf is an overstatement. We went out to the water, and they surfed. And I figured it out. Um, But I ended up figuring it out. That was over a decade ago. Now my wife and I live closer to the ocean, so I've been making my way out there and enjoying what just the joy it is to surf. And I took a group of people out with me. And it was actually one of these occasions that one of the guys that we were together, he wanted so badly to experience what it was like to catch a wave. But he was too afraid. And so we started moving out together. And and I understood fear because I've had to walk through it myself. See, in order to catch a wave, something has to happen first. You have to face the wave. And then you have to move toward the wall of water that is rushing towards you. And the closer you get, the lower the ground gets and the higher the wave gets. And so it feels overwhelming. And that wall doesn't just stay static there. It's moving at a far higher speed than you are. And that wall crashes. And that wall turns into what looks like A bunch of white horses trampling towards you. And it is moving fast. And if you don't know how to respond, it can overwhelm you. And then all of a sudden, it can throw you into a washing machine. And then you find yourself back on shore. But see, that is a very different place than the place beyond the break. See, the place beyond the break is the place that you get to wait, especially on a good day. And you get to see the wave coming. And you get to decide, I'm going to move into this wave. And I'm going to catch it. I'm going to get up. And I'm going to ride the wave and enjoy it. Before we can experience the joy of riding it, we must be willing to go into it and through it. Peace is much the same. Before we can experience the peace he came to give, we must be willing to risk and move in that direction. See, the light shined in the darkness, but we must step into the light. And if we do that, we get to discover Jesus is the one worth celebrating. He is the one worth celebrating. Far beyond every festivity, far beyond anything we could ever look to, he is the one who has begun a good work in our soul. And the one who promises to bring peace on earth is able to bring peace within, rest within. And a soul that is illuminated is able to illuminate friendships and relationships, neighborhoods and communities. And we could say, he did it. Jesus is the light. The darkness cannot overcome it. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving our closing song, but I'd love to just pray over this word together. Lord, I thank you that you are the one who sees everything 
far more than we can. And you know us better than we do. And you chose to step into our world as a child, one who is open to being embraced and rejected. You are safe to approach, and you are powerful enough to do what we can never do for ourselves. You are able to set our hearts free, to illuminate our soul, give us rest and peace, wholeness, and authentic joy. I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would do that this Christmas season. I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.